coming up on this episode of Belief Hole. From an ancient land of untouched country, cradled by the mists of the Mackenzie Mountains, strange tales have been regularly recorded. For thousands of years, the Dene people have encountered terrifying creatures and wandering spirits harbored in the hauntingly beautiful lands of the Nahani Valley. The Nakani, the cave-dwelling man-eating giants of Dene lore, are said to skulk just beyond the campfire, while prospectors tell stories of prehistoric monsters said to roam amongst bubbling springs within elusive tropical corners of this frosty land. And gold-thirsty men have met mysterious ends in pursuit of cursed treasure said to lie beneath the alluvial waters of the South Nahani. On this episode of Belief Hole, grab your paddle, mount your canoe, and venture with us downriver as we explore the mysteries, murders, and monsters within the legendary land of Nahani, Valley of the Headless Men. Sasquatch, homunculus, alien races, Satanism in Hollywood, MK Ultra, Tartaria. There's like a whole. I've been watching this one guy. Like, Close the door, in. Jury, close your door. What's the uh, inner Earth disagreements? Ghost Dad. <laughs> I like that movie. Dogman, Bohemian Grove, Corey Feldman, Magicians are demons, Spectres, Spirits, Sleep Paralysis, Strange Disappearances, Sky Whale Phenomena, yes! Alternative History, Shadow People. Shh, quiet, I'm trying to say words with the mouth. It's getting dicey out there. Poltergeists. That's cool. Anunnaki. What is the moon? <laughs> Elf Towers. I would never talk about it. That's old. Y2K. Cover ups. Apocalyptic catastrophe. Vampire. Well, hello, hello. Hello, friends of the whole and newcomers alike. I'm John. I'm Chris. And I'm Jeremy. Welcome to the whole. And today we are here to bring you a tale of vast adventure, mystery, tragedy, Mm. and other things like that. Yes. (laughs) We could just jump right into it. That's what we've been doing lately. Yeah, because no one is... wants to hear about our lives or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like this story has engulfed at least your life the past few days. Yeah. What? We, what is it again? This, Jonathan, my friend. This is poison ivy all over my arm. There we go. <laughs> Here's a personal note. How's that going for you, John? It sucks. I'm popping one oh, right now. Dude, what are you doing? Are you eight years old? And goose spreads the the disease. The itchy. I wipe it off. I wipe it off (laughs) on my pants. All right. I'm sorry. Let's keep going. Yeah. Where are we going today? Okay. So this is an interesting topic. I've been excited about this one for a little while. Actually, a uh, listener by the mysterious moniker of the letter J. This might have been suggested by J Valentine. I'm not sure. It's a J of our our listenership. I'm sure he'll let us know after the fact. But it took me down a wild, wet web, a wild, wet ride, if you will, much like the log rides from when we were children, (laughs) down this treacherous river to a treasureful mystery. A valley of headless men, am I right? A valley of headless men. That is our topic today. The great mystery of the Nahani Valley. The curse of the Nahani Valley, if you will. The valley of the headless men. Yeah, this this, uh, whole area is pretty fascinating because until recently, it had kind of been buried in time, right? As far as the folklore there. Until this 
author Hammerson Peters started writing these incredible books about the legends of Canada. The stories had been popularized, I think, in the, the mid-early 1900s in Treasure Hunter magazines, if that's a thing. Books, tall tales being told from the West, but it, this is all based on newspaper accounts. I've seen documentary footage of the original newspaper clips. These things happen. These bodies were found headless. It is a fascinating tale, and it, it, the cool thing about it is that it takes place in this beautiful, beautiful setting of the Nahani. Well, now it's the Nahani National Park. Then it was just an area of the uh, Mackenzie Mountain Range in the Northwest Territory. Right, and it's not just beautiful, but it's packed with stories of Bigfoot-like creatures, right? Which we'll get into later, the Nakani. The Nakani. It's also, it has bear-type wolves. Bear wolves? Oh, yeah. Who has the, the great white wolf? Wahila. Wahila. Yeah, Wahila. That's this gigantic wolf that some confuse with this lion that's also supposed to exist in the area. Another white kind of snow camouflaged lion. Yeah, John, imagine a big wolf man-eater, but even larger because it's part bear. Mm -hmm. So it's stockier and it has, I'll show you a picture later, but it's got this broad snout, you know, compared to a human, it's bear-sized, but it's it has the agility of a wolf. And has the tail and everything. Pretty freaky. It's something like that did actually exist. We'll, we'll get into that later. But a lot of reports of that in is this area. Is it a area. wolf? Yes, a wolf. <laughs> they do have, I don't know if it's, so the Dene people are the people that occupy this area. One of three groups. They're made up of, I think, like 20 some tribes make up this kind of shared indigenous heritage there. And that's where a lot of the stories, so even before the prospectors come searching for their treasure, there was the Naha. And all the other legends and mystery spirits invested in this mysterious space, this Nahani Valley, which is now part of the Nahani National Park. Yeah, and even before these mysterious deaths happened, that valley already had a reputation for evil spirits. It was a haunted valley, according to the Dene people and the Naha that were there. Yeah, but what's so fascinating to me about this area, I love picturing this scene. Imagine getting to this, there's there's this legendary valley, and we'll get to the, the mystery, the adventure here, which I think will relate to a lot for certain reasons. There's this valley that's said to have all this treasure, but not only is it a treasure hunt, per se, or an adventure, it's just that it's set in this gorgeous area with these towering thousand-foot canyon walls. At certain points in this river, the only way to access this Nahani Valley, or the, the Valley of the Headless Men, is by boat or float plane. I even read on like modern pamphlets from the national park there. You know, if you're going, you have to be prepared to be flexible with your plans because depending on the low-laying mists in the valley, the plane may not be able to actually fly in and land for a period of days at a time. Yeah. So it's so, it's so untouched. It's so difficult from a weather perspective, from a, a traversing perspective in order to get there. And we'll get into it as the stories go, but just going down the river, there's one canyon, two canyon, three canyon, four canyon. And the Nahani Valley or the Valley of the Headless Men that we're focusing on is between the first and second canyon. And getting there, just getting to that valley through the water, through the area they call the splits, is I think before the first guy got there in the 1960s, 41 people died trying to get there. So that's how difficult and untouched it is. Here's a waterfall, John, one of the canyons. This is called Virginia Falls. This is, the, I think, at the third or fourth canyon in the park, meeting the two. It's twice as high as Niagara Falls. Wow. Yeah, it looks like something from Middle Earth. That's crazy. That's I mean, the one with the thing sticking up in the middle? Yeah, it's got this big jutting rock spire in the middle of it, separating the river as it falls into two 
arms going down to the next next phase of the river, the next lowland. That's low crazy. Land. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, the pictures from this are amazing. Like, I wanted to gather so many just to show you, put in a slideshow. But this area reminds me of something that you would see more like in the east, you know, like in the Himalayas or something, something that mm -hmm. looks like out of this world, other planet, you know? Yeah, it's ridiculously gorgeous. But I just wanted to say real quick, John, there's parts of this river here, parts of these canyons where there's stretches where there's nowhere to go if you have a problem because it's thousands of feet deep. Imagine a river thousands of feet deep with canyons above you that are thousands of feet high. If something happens, you capsize. There's, I forget how long the stretch is, but miles at least where you can't get, you can't recover. You look here at this image. We'll have this in the show notes. This is the first canyon. Now, if you look, the walls are this resistant limestone. They're the tallest of the park along the river. Imagine, I think it might be like 10 miles or something that you're on that stretch in your canoe. If you need to get out of your canoe, you can't. Well, there's a little spot right there. Okay, well, could. this picture, yeah, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> Stop it, John. It's really my, my dangerous mystery. No, I imagine those places are probably few and far between, though. Yeah, if I something mean, happens. You can, there's nowhere to get out and take a rest. Oh, oh, there's a spot right there. There's though. a spot you can hop on. Shut up, John. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, it's super sheer, thousand foot high yeah, walls where, to the canyon. Where you can't get off, it's impossible. Like, there's nothing. It's just yeah. straight up and thousands this, of feet. Imagine just knowing that there's that depth below you. I don't know how much that matters. I mean, think of the size of the monsters that could live well, in that's thousands right. of feet. You know, <laughs> it's reaching down to the maybe Shambhala or something beneath you. Yeah. Interesting thing about this valley is that it's one of the few places in the world that hasn't transformed through the ice age and the glaciers moving down. This thing was protected, so it was undisturbed for a hundred thousand years. So three hundred thousand years. Three hundred thousand. Up to three hundred thousand years. years. This park, while every area around it went through four different glacial ages, if you will, I forget what it's called here. Actually, have a spot on that. And of course, this leads to stories of prehistoric animals that yeah, might yeah. still exist there, especially when you think about the folklore of the tribes that are there and the the stories that they tell about things that sound remarkably like sauropods, you know, dinosaurs, mammoths, and even mammals from the Pliocene, like that bear dog thing. Uh, really interesting. Yeah, massive, furry, hard tusked monsters marching through the valley. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> that phrase sounds funny. Massive, furry, long tusk creatures kinda... <laughs> marching through the valley. I'm trying to be colorful, you know. <laughs> it was good. It's a it's a mammoth. That's what I'm talking about. But <laughs> they, you know, it's interesting. You know, you hear this a lot around the world. The descriptions that people see, of like in the Mikeli and Bembe in Africa, right? The sauropod that they saw, this long-necked dinosaur. At least that's their description. They didn't know what it was called in the Western terms. But as reports came out, it looked like that's exactly what this was. They'd seen this. The same thing here in this area is protected from the changes happening around it. It's one of the oldest preserved animal-inhabited, exotic foliage-inhabited regions. It's teeming with life because of these bubbling hot springs in the area, in right. the valley. So it keeps it, I think it's 30 degrees or some amount, much great amount, man, my words today, <laughs> a much great amount higher. Uh, it's very warm compared to the surrounding areas. So it leads to these tales that prospectors would hear from other prospectors coming back, natives coming back from this region saying it's a tropical paradise. I mean, there's stories about that where, you know, it's palm trees and mammoths and um, naked women? Aboriginal, beautiful women, giants swimming and dancing, frolicking <laughs> in the pools. Got everything in there. There are these tall tales, but a lot of it comes from the reality of this beautiful, oddly warm kind of environment that creates this enticing call to would-be treasure little hunters. A piece of paradise. A little piece of paradise where you might find gold. And that's where our story begins. And I did want to say that the, uh, just to get, okay, 
Uh, he just looked at me like, <laughs> like you're, he goes, <laughs> that's called the, uh, the research brain blank. Like, look at Chris, you're like, what do we do? In a split moment of flowing conversation, you're deciding whether or not to further elaborate on a factoid or to move to keep the story going. Right. And your brain gave up, so you just look Start up. Start going. <laughs> <laughs> so to briefly elaborate on that point, we talked about the, the changes around it that weren't happening here. The glacial advances. About two million years ago, gradual cooling occurred, resulting in four separate periods of multiple glacial advances. In contrast to most of Canada, this area was not covered by ice during the last of the four advances. The most recent advance was 80,000 to 8,000 years ago. Although the area was cold enough, there was not sufficient precipitation to permit formation of the glaciers. So you have 80 to 8,000 years ago, when everything else was frozen over, mammoths getting smashed by glaciers and icebergs and, you know, land glacial formation and ice moving, blah, blah, blah. This freezing, this area was untouched. And that's what allows for the potentiality of there being these giant prehistoric monsters still roaming in this area that prospectors and natives alike would report seeing from time mm -hmm. to time. And I think you have a story about that, Chris, don't you? Coming up in the expansion? Yes. Cool. Expansion is going to be fun. Just briefly, I'll let you know what's coming up in there. Expand your mind. Expand your mind with the expansion. There's so much in this topic, and we're going to barely brush the surface of the legends of the Nahani Valley and Hammerson Peter's great collection of stories and uh, research, but we're going to be talking about things like attacks by otter men. <laughs> half men, half otter. Pretty astounding stuff. One account is, well, we'll get into why people think it might be this native legend of this certain creature, but regardless of what it is, it's terrifying these things that attack this What does prospector. that look like? Well, you'll see it in the expansion. I have a picture of it for you. An otter man? Yeah. The picture I have is sort of a, a buff <laughs> mammalian man with a small otter head. We're going to get into that. We're going to talk about glacial demons. Accounts of oh, yeah, strange monsters within the ice attacking stampeders that were going across the glacial plains to find their treasures. The stampeders now, were like the early prospectors going towards the Klondike when they heard gold was during found. the Yeah, the Yukon gold rush. Some of those were the first to be lost in some say headless discovered headless in the Nahani Valley, yeah. which ties into the first episode here. By the way, the expansion for people who don't know is a bonus episode you can get if you sign up at beliefhole.com. Click on the expansion button and you'll get access to the story Chris is telling you about now and all of our previous many, many fun content-filled episodes. Access granted. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. That's all right. We'll also get into some mammoth hunts. Mammoths. Modern mammoth hunts. And if we have time, Indian ghosts of the storm. Uh, some really cool stories about almost time slip experiences with these spectral natives during lightning storms. But we'll see if we have time for that. But it's going to be a great expansion, so get in it. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Looking forward to it. Okay, so yeah, a lot of these legends and specifically the bodies that would over the years, starting in the early 1900s, maybe late 1800s, depending on what sources you read, carrying up through the mid-1900s, evidence of these stories are seen in just the naming of different areas within this park. Oh, the river itself has a connection to... Oh, that's true. One of the most recognized cryptids, obviously, in the world. Sasquatch or Bigfoot. The name of the river there from this isolated tribe was the Nahani River. South Nahani River. Yeah, that, that river alone, according to Dene language expert Alan Adam, quote, Nahadi, an old native word for the South Nahani River, means river of giants. So right there, it sort of corroborates a lot of the accounts of this 
furry, tall, red, glowing-eyed, stinky thing that's twice the size of humans. Yeah, we're, we're kind of jumping around, right. but that's, we'll get to that. That's the Nakani, and that is one of the chief pieces of lore in the area, especially those who are interested in the Sasquatch idea. It does give credence to that because a lot of prospectors, natives alike, people just traveling through at times have witnessed this hairy, shaggy creature, although it's described in different ways. My favorite description is basically what some refer to as the troglodyte or the... Uh, the giant twice the size of humans. This adds to the lore of the area because this is one of the things you might find while there if you're seeking your treasure. According to English adventurer Michael H. Mason in his 1924 book, The Arctic Forest, the Gwich'in of Peel River country in northern Yukon described the Nakani, or Mahoney, as they called them, as terrible wild men with red eyes and of enormous height, completely covered with long hair. Their tremendous size was attested to by the three-foot-long human-like footprints that they left in their wake, as well as their alleged ability to tear entire birch trees from the earth with their bare hands, roots and all. So that's pretty big, yeah. right? That's a big, hairy, scary creature. And this is great. This is my favorite description of this thing that they see here. And this it varies from, you know depending on which folklore you want to read, whoever's telling the story, they have different kind of descriptions but this was my favorite. Similarly, Philip Godsell, who spent much time around the campfires of the Slave and Casca during his years as an inspector of the Hudson's Bay Company, described the Nakani as, quote, troglodytes, twice the size of ordinary humans, who went about naked save for a coating of evil-smelling hair. In some articles, he likened them to gorillas and gargoyles and commented upon the superhuman strength and speed they were said to possess. Evil smelling hair. Yeah, and that's a quote from the early 1900s. What is that? It just imagine. Like burnt hair? Well, think about it. Doesn't that sound like skunk ape stories or Sasquatch or Bigfoot? The repulsive smell. Yeah. Sometimes the smell of decay or death. Exactly. And also stories of the red eyes comes up a lot with the Nakani. Mm. Another overlaying trait. Right. There's a lot of attributes that you hear with this Nakani character that align with modern day Bigfoot accounts. The smell, the size, the, the more aggressive behavior, depending on which... Bigfoot you're talking about. And again, just so weird, like those exact traits parallel completely with the Yowie in Australia. Same same specific traits, but worlds apart. Isolated, aborigine to the isolated. That's true. Naha. That's how you know it's real. Exactly. Well, it might be a good indicator at least. A corroboration. Okay, so before prospectors lost their heads in this valley, well before that, this region was steeped in mystery and lore and Hammerson Peters, excellent author, getting a lot of this information from, we'll be quoting throughout this episode, called Legends of the Nahani Valley. Excellent book. It'll be in the show notes if you guys want to get a piece of that. It's really, really fascinating, really well written. But he kind of sets up the scene with the initial legends in that area of the native peoples. And that brings us to the disappearance of the Naha. And the Naha were a people feared by the local Dene people. And this will explain this disappearance in breathtaking description. Deep in the heart of the Canadian North, in the southernmost reaches of the Mackenzie Mountains, lies the valley of the South Nahani River, a mysterious area shrouded in legend. Long before the first white explorers paddled their canoes into the country in search of fur, local Dene Indians gave the place a wide berth. These natives believed that the valley was an evil area pervaded by bad medicine a malevolent supernatural presence which hung over the place perpetually like its ever-present fog. 
Over the years, a number of native hunters spurred by bravery, foolishness, or desperation wandered into the valley in search of game. The few who returned regaled their fellows with all manner of hair-raising tales. At night, while their compatriots crouched around the campfire, these survivors told of encounters with an evil spirit who haunted the valley, whose unearthly shrieks echoed throughout the canyons on windy nights. Others described a race of fearsome hairy giants who dwelled in caves carved from the canyon walls, led by a beautiful, pale-skinned chiefess. Mm. These primitive mountain men killed and ate anyone who trespassed on their territory. According to the Dene tradition, in ancient times, the Nahani Valley was inhabited by a nomadic, warlike tribe known as the Naha. The Naha were ferocious warriors who frequently descended from their mountain homes to raid Dene settlements in the lowlands surrounding the Laird and Mackenzie rivers. After suffering a number of devastating incursions, a party of Dene braves took to the warpath, traveling into Nahani country with the intention of pillaging a Naha camp. In time, the warriors came upon a scattering of teepees and prepared to attack. Upon rushing into the camp with their weapons at hand, the Dene discovered that their enemies were nowhere to be found. It was as if they had vanished into thin air. With all the campfire tales of evil spirits and giant cannibals swiftly recalled to mind, the Dene warriors fled the country, beating a fearful retreat back to the lowlands. They never saw the Naha again. Spooky. Yeah, that sets up the scene pretty well. It reminds me of the Anasazi in the American Southwest that just disappeared. Where did they go? Where did they go? I mean, there's stories that they, you know, just migrated somewhere else for certain reasons and then <laughs> broke off into separate tribes, but... That's like the most likely answer. <laughs> we don't like those answers. Yeah, that's the suggestion that they became the Navajo, right? One, that's one idea. Oh, the Naha. Yeah, that's one idea that Hammerson Peters brings up in, in the book. But it's fascinating that when, whenever there's an account folklore or not, where uh, a large group of people just vanish seemingly in the middle of the night. Yeah. Definitely perks your cockles yeah. up. Yeah, well, you know... Your mystery cockles. Similarly to the, the Anastasi, they did have access to the inner earth through elaborate cave systems. Oh, right? that's, that's a fact. A, that's a thing here <laughs> in the... Uh, well, I'm putting the inner earth thing in there, but that, we all know that's how you get to the inner earth, right? Tunnels, yeah. But that's another thing interesting about this area, this feature that is mysterious with this place is the massive cave system. Yeah, and the, the folklore there, or the native lore there about these, we'll get into this more in the expansion, but these sort of spiritual prehistoric creatures that they would hunt were said to live underground in these tunnels and would come oh, really? up, which is so familiar. Even the idea the Van of- Van Meter Visitor. Van Meter Visitor, right? This prehistoric, almost pterosaur looking thing that would come out and attack this town yeah. coming out of the tunnels. Again, the idea of this prehistoric beast living underground yeah, coming get, out. Getting into that does kind of echo in my mind all these things, these attributes, these nodes of truth if you will, about the uh, inner earth that we hear. The things that might live in there. We did that Hollow Earth episode where we talked about how massive these openings in the inner earth that are like the sky 10 times, what was it, higher than our sky mm -hmm. with oceans inside the earth. And old stories about giant prehistoric creatures still living, surviving in the inner earth. And now we see this here and we have a connection with these cave systems. I mean, I know that's out there, but that's what we do. Or is it in there? Or is it in there? Nice, Chris. And for all you beliefings out there who've been banging the Hollow Earth drum and want some more stories about that, we will be doing a deep dive on Agartha coming up this season. Agartha. 
the land of the inner earth. Okay, so fun. yeah. So this cave question that comes up kind of organically here brings me to the uh, the containment theory, as I like to call it. This is my idea, John. I think we probably talked about this in probably some missing four and one episodes. Um, oh yeah, this is a fun concept. So the containment theory is an idea I have that national parks are placed not just because of their rugged beauty and preservation and special wildlife that lives there, but because it is a place, it is a way to contain things that might live there. Or phenomenon that might occur there. Right. And I, you know, I know missing four and one, it's a serious subject, but I do think it, it's, it's an interesting idea. The idea that like, if there is some knowledge of access gateways to other realms, inner earth, and there are dangerous creatures or things that might live there, we might want to contain that and not tell everybody or we being, you know, the powers that be not to elicit fear in something that they can't control or kill. They might be able to contain it. This reminds me of the cabin in the woods. Oh yeah. I was going to say what a fantastic sci-fi television show that would be where the people who work in the park are secretly these enforcement officers who keep, you know, kind of like men in black, Yeah. but for natural parks. And instead of aliens, it's like Jurassic animals that live in tunnels. Uh huh. Somebody pitch it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I've had this thought before, right? And I think other people probably come to this conclusion or this, this possible theory, but I found this, this is interesting. This is from a pamphlet from the Nahani National Park. Basically, it like instructs you how to go down the rivers, what rapid levels they are, yada, yada, running you down to the Nahani Valley. And I found this little excerpt that reminded me, by the way, when these first caves were discovered, I think by the, or at least mapped by the guy who got this place through the help of Trudeau, the prime minister at the time back in 76, I think it was, these caves were open, obviously. They weren't even accessed until the 60s. You're talking about mapped. the caves up on the cliffs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But then after, you know, this was turned into a park, the caves, at least this this major cave, which I have a description here of, is blocked from access. It's shut down. You can't go in. And here's a here's an interesting bit I found from this, just this hiking rafting manual from the park itself. Number four, hiking. A growing number of park visitors are undertaking hiking trips of one day to a week's duration during their visit. Almost any tributary valley can be explored. Trips to Sunblood Mountain and the Bogotcho Nahani Plateaus via Dry Canyon and Lafferty Creeks are particularly popular. Big bold letters. You may not enter any cave in the park without written permission from the park superintendent. So have a good day. Yeah. <laughs> it's very bold and very yeah. all caps. I mean, you could obviously obviously for safety, safety, but but it's probably giant big feet that live in there. Yeah, but it would be cool to see. You think you would have some of it accessible. Uh, a description here. The Grotto Valerie Cave System, for instance, which is closed to visitors, is one of the finest ice caves in the world. It contains grand chambers and tunnels 1,900 meters long and the gallery of dead sheep where some 100 trapped doll sheep died and Aww. is the final access point to the inner earth. <laughs> you added that. I added the last part, but <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I just think that that's interesting, these caves. We, we see that everywhere, these caves that some accessible mammoth caves, but then there's always areas where you can't go. And of course, it's dangerous. Well, it's, it's really cool too because the folklore here, the, the, the native lore about the Nakani, these Sasquatch type creatures that live in these caves and come down and chop people's heads off. So there's, there's so much lore right. here and stuff we're not going to get into. Like there's a hierarchy of evil spirits mm-hmm. that haunt this region, That's that haunt this valley, too. which we won't get into here. Maybe in the expansion, we'll get more into that, but definitely fascinating. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of lore. Not only do we have these prehistoric monsters, this Akani, Bigfoot-like creature, allegedly giants uh, that are cannibals, red-eyed cannibals, but we, we also have these hierarchy of spirits 
going from, you know, your basic kind of elemental spirits, wind, air, fire, water, whatever they are. Anymorph and Power Rangers. Exactly like that. They have their own powers. <laughs> Wait, that was not Power Rangers. That was the Captain Planet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. Remember the dude with the monkey? Now I get Heart. it. Yeah. Water, wind, fire. Water, wind, fire. Then one guy's like, I got heart. I got passion. <laughs> I need a hug. <laughs> He's the one that no one dressed up for for Halloween. Some people did. What was I just saying? The hierarchy of oh, spirits. Oh, yeah. And the other spirits that are interesting are, like, of course, spirits of the dead, which I think can transmogrify. I saw that word somewhere. Or transform into more corporeal spirits that can attack, kill. Mm -hmm. Then you have the familiars of the shamans in the area that oh, are right. said to roam uh, in their free time, I suppose. And then, of course, oh, the, the crazy darkness, I think they just refer to as the enemy, this kind of demon-like force that exists in the area that's the most feared. I forget the name of it. I don't know. You might have that in the it's expansion. It's funny because it reminds you of Sauron, like the enemy. Right. right? Just this darkness, this, mm -hmm. the most evil of evil. Yeah, it's like supernatural. Yeah. Exactly. And that, I think we'll touch on that in the expansion. Well, all that's a good background for the story that you're about to tell, right? The story of three brothers venturing into this valley before it's coined headless valley or valley of the headless men exactly all right we're going to take a quick break and when we get back we'll get into this rugged mysterious adventure of doom, doom. on this week's expansion episode we'll explore the monsters of the great white north indian ghosts Glacier demons, cave creatures, otter men attacks, bear wolves, and so, 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 so much more. And now, for the expansion preview. Access granted. Now we're going to tell a tale of corroboration here. And this appears in the March 1909 issue of the Alaska Yukon Magazine, and this was written by a prospector named Frank E. Howard, and this is his experience. And this incident took place during a prospecting trip that he made in the early 1900s. While camping alone off the shores of Yakutat Bay, located on the Alaskan coast, Howard ascended the glacier through a crack in the ice and began to make his way over to a distant ridge. On the way, he lost his footing and slid into an open crevice. Finding himself wedged between the fissures and narrow walls, Howard was unable to climb out of the slippery chasm. <laughs> no, not doing that. Chasm. Slippery chasm. And decided to follow it deeper into the ice, hoping that it would lead out into the bay. As I kept going ahead, Howard wrote, I noticed a gradual increase of light, and in a few more steps, I stood in a broad wall of blue light that came down from above, and looking up, I saw there was no clear opening to the surface, but objects were now revealed some distance around. Then an object rose slowly out of the glimmer and took form, a spectral thing with giant form and lifelike movement. The object rose erect, a goliath in the shape of a man. This glacial being had a small head, narrow shoulders, and abnormally wide hips. It growled a challenge, and suddenly Howard was, quote, engulfed in a rank, indescribable odor. Petrified, the prospector desperately searched for an escape route, the hairs of his neck standing on end. Before he could make a move, however, the creature slinked away, eyeing him, quote, with a slantwise glance as it vanished into the gloom, his heart hammering in his chest, 
Howard continued deeper into the crevice and found an exit about 50 feet away, which opened up onto a timbered beach. Since my miraculous encounter and escape, he wrote, I often attempt to solve the mystery that still enshrouds the apparition of the glacier. Terror might have magnified my imagination, but the apparition was not the imagination of an overbalanced mind. I am thoroughly convinced I saw something. It was not like any animal that I have ever seen before. Yeah, so what is living in these craggy glaciers? If you enjoyed that clip, head over to bleafhole.com and hit the expansion button to get access to all of our extra episodes. We're back. Welcome back to the adventure in the Nahani Valley. Yes, yeah, time to get into the canyon. Dead Men's Valley or the Headless Valley or the Valley of the Headless Men. There's a lot of names for it but all alluding to the same mysterious phenomena that happened at the early 20th century. Pretty gorgeous. Pretty beautiful. Gorgeous. So this area, it's, I mean, it's a sought after place because it is hikers, mountain climbers, dream achievement, I would say. Just because of the untouched beauty and the- Isolation. Isolation, the difficulty, the accomplishment in getting there. Do you have any idea what the winners, are they really brutal there? I mean, yeah, you can definitely yeah. freeze to death, which does happen. Yeah, it's a pretty tumultuous place when it comes to the climate, especially in the winter. Unless you're in one of those prehistoric tropical paradise <laughs> right valleys. The hot springs. Yeah, the hot springs are there all year round. It's interesting, you know, reading all these scary tales about the darkness and the treacherous land of the Nahani Valley. But I saw some pictures like this old lady and some younger folk in one of the hot springs sipping from branded coffee mugs for the travel company. Well, that might not have been in the Headless Valley. That was in Krauss Springs, which is, I think, further down. The Headless Valley is between Canyon 1 and Canyon 2. That's the hard place to get Very treacherous. You can go. You can go there. Of course, it's really difficult. You have to go by float plane, bush plane, or by water vehicle, raft, whatever. Fourth Canyon, I think, around there is the Krauss Hot Springs. But, I mean, wherever you go, looks beautiful. Some areas more dangerous than others. We should take a trip to... There's a place in Canada that's the Sasquatch capital of Canada. And it's a hot springs, and it looks amazing. So our chief story, our chief legend in this area that spawned the Valley of the Headless Men could be argued comes from the story of the McLeod brothers. Now, to give you an idea of where this took place, the Northwest Territory, this is a region in the Northwest Territory around the Mackenzie Mountains. The Northwest Territory is 442,000 square miles. Wow. It's a half a million square miles. There's like nobody up there. Guess how many people live there? Eight. Okay, let's well, feed. Isn't there like undercut my my boom? Is it? No. It's, <laughs> now when I say it's higher, it's like, oh, that's a lot of people. Yeah. It's not eight. 50,000? It's 44,826 from, I think it was a 2016 census. But yeah. It's a lot more than eight. Yeah, but the, for the disbursement know, for of the, people. Yeah, for the, yeah. the size There's of like the one area. Person half for every, a million square miles, 44,000 people. So that's like a small like city. one person for every, I don't know how many thousands of miles or something. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So the river that we're talking about in the story, the South Nahani River, this river is the undulating, mysterious treasure vein, vein of adventure, I guess you could say, pulsing in the heart of the Nahani Valley, where our story takes place, which is in the heart of this Northwest Territory that is 442 million square miles, population of 44,826. And to add to that, where the stories kind of begin, the last populated settlement, you could say, that's a Nahani village, indigenous people's village, the Dene people, called Nahani Butte. 
and it has, I think, like around 160 residents that live there, 20 miles east, I believe, of the park. And that's at the base of where this river goes into the valley, right? Yeah, it's the last settlement right before you go up the South Nahani River to make your treacherous journey into the Nahani Valley. I keep saying treasure, I just keep thinking of like treasure hoards. It's gold. It's gold. It's gold. Yeah, we didn't even like really break that down, but that's- it's prospectors, gold mining, sourdoughs. Um, sourdoughs? Sourdoughs is what they called the, uh, the old timers up in the North Country. Because they would have sourdough that in order to survive up there, you needed some kind of reliable food source. So they had their sourdough yeast that, you know, you, oh, you can yeah. have sourdough yeast that's like a thousand years old. Oh, right. You just grow it and maintain it through generations. Anyways, they would keep it. It's a culture, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you probably know more about it than I do. This before I just tw- heard about it. It's before Twinkies. There's a whole culture around the sourdough culture. Um, <laughs> Tom Papa makes sourdough bread. <laughs> Oh, cool. Anyways. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> sourdough. So the, the, That's a good impression. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, your face looked like him. Anyway. Your face looked your like him. Your face looked like him, John. <laughs> Weird. Anyway, so they were known as sourdoughs. Like once you were a seasoned kind of old timer in the territory because you had this reliable food source that could grow this bread for you and you would, they were known to keep it on their necklace or on their belt, sleep with it to keep it close to them at all times. Aww. So they became known as sourdoughs. Get lonely out there um, in the valley. Yeah. And I think that because they thought it might freeze and hurt the yeast, but then I read that it's actually heat that hurts. So I don't know if they were doing... This isn't a baking show, Jeremy. <laughs> okay. Get into the treasure hunt, the gold hunt. Okay, so let's get into the river. So you leave the butte and you head off into the... Yeah, so the Nahani Butte, which is that settlement that I mentioned right there at the, the beginning mm-hmm. of the part of the South Nahani River that leads you into the valley of the headless men. From there, there's a very dangerous waterway that a lot of people have lost their lives called the Splits. It's a deadly labyrinth of gravelly islands and tangled log jams, claim the lives of many a canoeist, both native and white, serving as an appropriate gateway to the sinister realm of the mystery and menace beyond. Past the Splits, the South Nahani snakes out of the razor-rigid Mackenzie Mountains, carving its way through the limestone, the gloomy watershed of the river beyond, a series of mist-shrouded valleys fringed by rocky crags is where our legend takes place. And that comes, of course, from Hammerson Peters, who wrote this great book. Yeah, and this, this frightful, treacherous trip, regardless of its potential dangers, was attractive because of the whispers of gold. And that's what drew the brothers in. Exactly. And this is how the story begins. So there are three main characters. John, Jeremy, and Chris, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I was so drawn to this initially, because... It reminds me of like a tombstone story with the Earp brothers, but instead of sheriffs trying to tame the outlaws in the Wild West, they are searching to make their claim living in the Northwest Territories in the Rugged Mountains. But it's three brothers. Well, actually, it's several brothers. So here's the characters. Elder brother, Fred McLeod, is the first to hear and send the brothers on their journey. Our two main characters who meet their tragic end are Willie and Frank McLeod. And then Charlie, the younger brother, also plays a role in this. They have an interesting backstory, an interesting lineage, because these guys weren't, like I've heard a lot of accounts of the story being told, but these people grew up in the territory. They spent half their time at Fort Laird with their father, who was a Scotsman who came over the territory when he was young. And the other half of their time they spent with the Matisse people. They were half Matisse. Matisse is a, is a person of mixed indigenous and European race. And their mother was a Matisse woman who had married their father. Oh, so they weren't like city slickers from New York. No, so that's what, and that's what I think gets missed sometimes when sometimes I've heard the story told. They grew up in the territory. By all accounts, they were natural woodsmen just from living there and learning from being children and being half native. They were one of the guys, I think it was Willie. He was quoted as 
Oh, both of them. Upon reaching manhood, civilization was as remote to them as it was to their Indian friends. And then Willie, whom one contemporary maintained, quote, showed most of the Indian in him and, like their ways, was a particularly restless soul who felt more at home in the bush than at the fort. And now this is important because they were so familiar with the bush and the dangers out there surviving through winters and yada yada. The fact that it was chalked up to, well, natural causes, how they meet their demises, I think questionable because of that. So Unlikely, yeah. Yeah. Let's get into the journey. What's the moment that draws them in, into the canyon? There must have been some moment that was like, we need to go. We need to go up into this valley. So in 1900, Fred McLeod, one of the brothers, was working uh, at the trading post at Fort Laird. And one fateful day, uh, Dene Brave walks in to his post. He's familiar with, obviously, the Nene people and people coming in from the area, but this was a unique-looking one. He was dressed in the old ways. He was, as he thought, a Nahani Indian, one of the mysterious nomadic people who hunted deep in the Mackenzie Mountains, living the old way as their ancestors had for a thousand years. So he stuck out to him, obviously. All this brave had with him was a rifle, his snowshoes, and a medicine bag. And out of that medicine bag, he pulls a gold nugget. Mm. So this obviously catches Fred's eye. He spends it like he doesn't know the real value of it. And Fred's like, you know, where'd you get pure natural gold, untainted? And after some prodding, he kind of hints that it came from the Nahani Valley. So Fred, working at the fort growing up there, he can't abandon his post to go, but he's over three years, this weighs on him. He never goes. And then three years later, another brave shows up by the name of Little Nahani. And again pays for his goods and gold. And Fred's like, where did you get this gold? And he again tells him, I got it in the Nahani Valley. So at this point, he can't sit still anymore. He writes to his brother, William, or Willie, in Edmonton, and lets him know that there's gold in the Nahani Valley. And so William then travels to Fort Nelson in British Columbia to recruit his brother, Frank. And that's where the adventure really kicks off. They gather up their supplies and being seasoned outdoorsmen, they grab their canoes and head up the Laird River toward the Nahani Valley. And they know this is a dangerous place when they're going in. Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing is like the reason that no one's tried for gold. The reason why there's gold up there is because no one goes there. That's the idea. No one's been there. It's it's untouched. If they want to pan for gold, this would be the place to go. There's still some. It's treacherous and allegedly haunted. And now there's two people that have come back saying that's where they found it. So there's no stopping them at this point. So once they get there, they make land and pan the alluvian fans of the Nahani Creek beds, and it works out. They find gold. So they promptly return in the spring. They end up making you know, a watch for their, their brother Fred who told them about it, or a watch chain out of the gold, uh, which is important. And then they want to go back, and then the following January, they return to the Nahani Valley with their younger brother, Charlie. Now this is where it starts to suck. After a few weeks of no success, they do strike pay dirt. They find a lot of gold, as the story goes. They spend time working the whole season separating gold placer, which is like the gold pulled from the creek bed soil. And they decide, you know, Frank and Willie, who've been there already through a winter, don't want to spend another winter there. So they're like, Charlie, let's get out of here before the snow falls. So they grab some old sluices, gold sluice boxes that the natives have left there previously, which are these like wooden metal boxes for sifting for gold. Sifting. And uh, they make a crude scout 
or a boat out of it, which is crazy. I mean, this is how outdoorsmen's e <laughs> these guys are. They just, oh, we'll take this wood and make a boat. Right. Well, it wasn't a good enough boat, apparently. Or maybe the rapids were just too bad. They end up capsizing partway down the river and lose almost all of their gold. Oh, no. Yeah, it's awful. After all that yeah. terrible time. Fortunately, they survive. And when they get back, they have just enough gold to show that they had some success that they wanted to go back. And I should have mentioned that the first time they came back, this kind of adds to the problem that they had. Uh, Willie and Frank had gambled most of the gold away oh, no. the first time. So that was just one of the reasons why they went back to get more. And then this time they lose it. So this time they're back and they can't afford another trip. They want to go back. They know it's there. Or at least Frank and Willie want to go back, but they just have no money. So they spend the season working at the Hudson Bay's company. And that's when our mysterious stranger comes into play. A man by the name of Robert Weir, the Scottish boat captain, I believe. When he enters the fort, he has to meet with older brother Fred, who's now moved to the fort since the previous adventure. And upon meeting him, Robert sees Fred's gold watch chain. So where did you, where'd you get that beautiful gold chain, Fred? And Fred's like, my brothers actually found this in the Nahani Valley. They want to go back and look for more, but they're broke. Maybe, Robert, if you could fund the expedition, they could find more. And so Robert finds Willie and Frank and says, hey guys, I will fund your expedition on one condition. I come with you. And we find the gold together. So once again, they're off. And Charlie this time says, it's a hard pass. Not going to go. Maybe because it was too difficult or he was worried about wrecking again. Whatever it was, he decided not to go with him this time. Well, yeah, it was almost died. So that spring, they set out with Robert who with his money has been able to purchase all the provisions that they need and they head back out. Well, seasons go by, winter comes around, no return. No word from them. At this point, Fred's not really worried because he knows that they're avid outdoorsmen. They grew up in the territory. They're probably fine. They probably found a gold mine that they're working throughout the winter and probably going to come back after next spring. So as time goes by in the spring of 1907, a canoe that looked like one of the canoes that belonged to the brothers was found bobbing in a driftwood pile somewhere near the Nahani Valley. That's not good. Word gets to Fred and Charlie, who are obviously unnerved. They gather some notable people that you might hear from some of these stories, including Poolfield, Sergeant Joy of the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, and two of the Lafferty brothers, and they head into the Nahani to search for the brothers. Together, the six men headed up the South Nahani in May 1908, prepared for the worst. After conquering the splits, the notorious First Canyon, and the raging Cache Rapids, the party entered an open, bowl-like section of the valley. The men searched this area for some time, meticulously scanning the shoreline for any sign of human presence. Just as they were about to give up, one among them noticed a small clearing in the trees along the shore, its green foliage punctuated by the white flash of axe cuttings. The crew paddled over to investigate. No sooner had the party stepped onto the riverbank than Charlie spied a dog sled runner lying in the grass. On its side was an undated message penciled in one of his brother's scrawl. We have found a fine prospect. When the party failed to find any additional clues in the area, they continued upriver. They're not here, boys. Let's keep going. At the northern end of the saucer-like valley, just downriver from the entrance to the second canyon, they came upon another clearing, this one evidently the site of some long-abandoned camp. 
There, they made a grisly discovery. On either side of a long dead campfire beneath two rotting woolen blankets and atop beds of spruce boughs lay a pair of human adult male skeletons. Both bodies, to the horror of their discoverers, were headless. One of them lay on its back, rolled neatly in its blanket, as if its former owner had died in his sleep. The other was sprawled out on its chest, its blanket twisted about it haphazardly, one of its bony arms reaching outward towards a rusted rifle which leaned against a nearby spruce tree. The manner in which the bodies were displayed suggested a nocturnal ambush. The first man to be attacked, the one lying on his back, was evidently killed in his sleep before he had a chance to defend himself, while the second had leapt from his bedroll in a vain attempt to reach his rifle before being struck down. Charlie quickly identified the bodies as his brothers from bits of tattered clothing, from Willie's gold ring, and from Frank's distinctive pocket watch, which dangled from a nearby tree branch. Shaken to the core, he and his companions proceeded to search the surrounding area for any evidence which might shed some light on the nature of his brother's deaths. The company found neatly stacked crates filled with supplies, although the picks and shovels the brothers had brought into the country appeared to be missing. They also discovered a box containing extraordinarily rich samples of gold-bearing quartz, indicating that the McLeod brothers had struck it rich somewhere in the Nahani Valley before their untimely deaths. A fine prospect indeed. Of the engineer Weir and of the McLeod brothers' missing heads, the company found neither hide nor hair. After burying their brother's remains and marking the graves with a simple wooden cross, Charlie and Danny returned to Fort Laird, where they sent word to the Royal Northwest Mounted Police of their find, wholly convinced that Willie and Frank had been murdered. Suspecting foul play, the Mounties investigated the site and concluded that Willie and Frank had likely discovered a gold bonanza somewhere in the Nahani, whereupon their partner Weir, crazed with gold lust, had murdered them in their sleep and made off with not only the fruit of their labor, but also quite possibly their heads. First of all, how sad. Yeah. Brothers finding their brothers dead in this wilderness, just curled up and bony, all bone. Yeah, very sad. Makes me sad. So that was the thought initially. The Robert Weir, the guy they didn't really know who funded it. Something tells me that there's more to the story. <laughs> yeah, it seems to all make sense, right? That idea of he's just gold crazed and thought maybe he had planned it all along to take these guys out and take all the gold. But why the heads? That's what seems a little Why mysterious. take the heads? And I actually thought about that and I thought, well, you could make the argument if he shot them in the head that he wouldn't want evidence of that. He so, didn't have ballistics back then. Yeah, but it would still show evidence of them being murdered and he was the only oh, guy right. with them. Uh, Solved. But so, <laughs> the heads were, in some reports, oddly twisted off. But Charlie, I think, was quoted as saying at some point that it was clean as a surgical cut, that they'd been removed. Hmm. But the odd thing about the story is that the official story was changed the following year from the mounted police when an unidentified skeleton was discovered in the woods about three miles south of Dead Man Valley. The Mountie assigned to the McLeod case in 1909 assumed that the body was Weir's and due to the fact that no gold was discovered along with it made a controversial deduction. <gasps> he concluded that Willie and Frank McLeod had lost their canoe along with their supplies through some freak accident and starved to death. While the brothers lay dying, Weir attempted to walk back to civilization but perished from privation along the way. Now, a couple problems with that 
and I think problems that a lot of the residents of the McKenzie region had at the time. Firstly, they seriously doubted the claim that the McLeod brothers were victims of the elements. Natural being, forces, yeah. Because yeah. they were, by all accounts, seasoned outdoorsmen. Mm-hmm. They knew how to survive, even through a winter. They had already spent a winter there. Right. So the idea that they just starved to death was hard to believe. Also, the way that the bodies were found, one man reaching for his rifle, arms stretched out like they had been attacked in ambush in the night. So the starvation angle was weird. And then the heads, of course, the heads. If it was murder, then what if the body found nearby was that Robert Weir? And if he murdered them and took their gold, first of all, there was gold left at the scene. Yeah. The hanging pocket watch, the bits of gold found in the courts, in the Gold Street courts that was found. Why weren't the supplies taken? That were left. And then the body they believed to be Robert Weir didn't have any gold on him. So Weir didn't have any gold. If it was a gold thievery and murder, the evidence for that is strangely... Didn't do a very good job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thieving. He just forgot the gold. Sounds like bloodlust. Bloodlust. Either that or a supernatural demon ghost. Well, the interesting thing, there are suspects, alleged suspects in this area of a inhuman nature, right? With a calling card for taking heads. Is that where it's going? In this valley. Right here? There are, allegedly, <laughs> what? Uh, according to native lore, something that lives in these caverns that takes heads. Well, of course. And that's what we touched on earlier was the Nakani. Right, exactly. Who some native legends and prospector folklore say is a head-hunting, hairy, beast-man giant. Hmm. Maybe Nephilim? Maybe Inner Earth... Uh, Troglodyte? Sasquatch? Sasquatch, potentially. Does this story have an ending? So the story continues in the way of more bodies. That story kind of has its own spinoff of Charlie continuing to investigate, believing Weir's still alive somewhere, Robert Weir, and following him, I think, to San Francisco or something. But the evidence of that, of Weir actually being seen, is, is shoddy. You just said they found him. The body. Oh, they, they believe sure the body's weird. weird. Right, but some people would refuse to believe that. They believe weird killed them, and this was a body of an old Klondiker. It was like stripped. It was like a skeleton, right? Yeah. They were stripped. I mean, they'd probably succumbed to the elements and been eaten away. That's another thing, too. If animals had eaten them, the argument was made. If, like, say, a bear ripped off its head, and bear were known in the area, why not any other limbs moved or, or torn? It was right, just the just heads. Just the heads, yeah. It's yeah. weird. Well, the third body, did it have a head? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think it did. I'm pretty sure that that was all. That was also missing a head. Well, actually, no, that's a good point. There are different versions of the story. Some say he was missing the head. Some say his jaw was found or his skull had a large piece missing from it or he was just headless. And that's kind of the thing with these stories is there are different versions because this is such an old story and it's been reported in different magazines. But either way, this is the beginning of the lore of this being the Headless Valley or the Valley of the Headless Men. Yes. Right, and it just continues. This strange head removal. Exactly. These poor people going into the valley. Yeah. Now, and just to briefly mention, another fella, Martin Jorgensen, Scandinavian fella. How many Jorgensons in this show? We've covered so many different Jorgensons. That's true. Weird. Remember the EVP guy mm-hmm. with the bird call? Okay, go ahead. So this is another prospector that's discovered. Again, this is discovered by Poole Field, who was on this first expedition. His name comes up a lot in these stories. He'll be in the expansion, actually, with a pretty crazy experience. What's well, the thing is it's such a small population in this area, especially at the time that you had a few notable figures that came up because they were the chief kind of adventurers in the area that were kind of reliable sources and were known, one of them being Poole Field. He's kind of a legend. Kind of reminds me of the Southwest in the States, like David Crockett and uh, Bowie. What was his name? David? Uh, all those folk David here. Bowie? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> all those folk heroes? Yeah, the yeah. Bowie knife guy. Yeah. Jim all Bowie? those guys at the Alamo, there are all these folk stories right. about him because it's this part of this birth of this uh, culture down there and the settling the land. Right. When it was a rugged territory. The Canadian characters. Yeah. 
So another prospector was uh, eventually discovered, Martin Jorgensen, as I mentioned, this time uh, by Poole Field, and his skeleton was, guess what? Headless. And his cabin has burned to ashes. So this is another theme, too, you'll hear in these subsequent stories, is the cabins being burned, but not really understanding why. There yeah. Another outdoorsman, that his cabin was burned, and I don't think he was ever found, but the official story was, well, his stovepipe caught on fire, but the argument was, how did he not wake up? Number two, he'd... Asphyxiation. He'd gone on many, many journeys like this where he's built these kinds of ramshackle cabins and you always make a wide berth for the, the stovepipe. So, I don't know, people had a hard time buying that. And then the headless thing is always an issue. Again, it's the, it's the patterns. Cabin burning, head removed. Right. And some of this is probably exaggerated, but a lot of this is based on actual deaths. But you hear different variations of how the story actually plays out. So, Jorgensen found by Poole. This is Poole's account of the finding, which is pretty interesting. And you'll hear a reminiscent attribute from the previous story. After rooting around for a while, there seemed to be a pretty well-cut-out trail leading up the river, so I started following it out. About 50 yards from the cabin, there was a bunch of large spruce, and the trail made a short turn around it. Just here, I found an axe in the trail. I picked it up, and just around behind the tree, I found Martin's bones, or what was left of them. His gun lay close by, loaded and cocked. We never found his skull, although we stayed all next day to examine the place well. Again, another head removed. Another cocked gun. Another gun seeming to be close by the body, maybe. Especially if it's cocked. Yeah. You know? Yeah, just strange. Squirrels don't cock guns. I'll be taking that. (laughs) They say it before. I'll be taking that, sir. Okay, so that's another weird story. And it's another headless body. And also... The reason that they went looking for him is because he had previously been to the fort or somewhere nearby trading post and paid for something with gold and gave word for his friend to come up. The is kind of the guy that he had hired to help for a certain period of time he was up there. So they knew that he had gold. And when they found him, there was no gold mm. and no head. And it was almost like this became this idea of this gold curse. You can't take gold out of this valley or if you do uh, without permission, that kind of idea. Maybe one of the spirits that are said to haunt the valley Mm -hmm. interesting yeah and then in 1945 an unnamed body of a miner from Ontario was found in his sleeping bag guess what he was missing his His wallet you guys (laughs) his head so as you look at these stories and we'll have them in the notes you know the stories vary a little for sure I mean there's exaggeration folklore that goes on but these are all based on these newspaper reports and the actual lives and deaths of these people who you know tried their hand at prospecting and uh meeting a tragic end in this area specifically. It's such a large time. High risk, high reward. Exactly. And this valley specifically was ridiculously high risk. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what makes this this area so interesting and these accounts interesting besides the macabre and strange head removal and things like that and the strange torching of cabins, the mysteries behind that is that the valley itself for hundreds or thousands of years had a reputation for being a place of death, haunted by evil spirits, a place mm-hmm. that you don't go. We hear this a lot, you know, in areas where there seems to be tragedy. And the Missing 401 stuff, you have the devil connection where things are just named after devils, gate, hells, hole, all that kind of stuff. There seems to be this history of, of darkness in these areas that where tragic events seem to cluster as time goes forward. And the Valley of the Headless Men is no different. And maybe one of the best examples. Now, a weird story, a weird story that I came across, one of the, uh, the tragic deaths in the Valley was of John O'Brien. Now, this was kind of strange. Not a headless story, but very bizarre. I call this the freakish freezing of John O'Brien. 
John O'Brien was a World War I veteran, and he entered the valley around this time in the 1920s. He'd built a cabin on Jackfish River, which flows into the South Nahani, just up from Nahani Butte, the settlement we talked about. On January 27, 1922, O'Brien left his cabin to inspect some traps. He told his partner that he expected to return in eight days. As you might guess, he did not. Jack LaFlair and Matisse Woodsman Jonas Lafferty, who shared a cabin with several others across the South Nahani from the Clawson Creek Hot Springs at that time, learned that O'Brien was missing about a month after his departure and set out to find him. LaFlair and Lafferty trudged across the frozen, snow-covered South Nahani on snowshoe and traveled north up the rugged slopes of what Raymond Patterson later named the Twisted Mountain. There, on a rocky shelf near the mountain's peak, at the end of his trapline, the two frontiersmen discovered John O'Brien's frozen corpse. The body was crouched over a pile of tinder with a box of matches in his icy hand. They were, quote, those big matches, said Billy Clark. You know, those big boxes, those traveling type. It appeared as though O'Brien had frozen to death in the process of lighting a fire. Yeah. So other sources... How's that happen? Other sources describe this too, like the the countenance, like his face. Like, yeah, he was sitting right up, hand outstretched, box matches in his hand. But according to reports, his face was calm. He was just lighting a fire. And whether he was hallucinating from, you know, frost madness or, or what... He's either, got the either, frost madness. <laughs> either he sat there and froze to death or he was flash frozen. That's what it was kind of reported to appear as being flash frozen. It was unique to other things they'd seen. Yeah. He hadn't seen someone. Probably one of the better ways to go. I yeah. think so. And when you, when I say frost madness, it's kind of interesting. The word madness was on my mind because another feature of this valley is that it tends to make people go mad. I think a dozen people or something in that time period were known to have gone mad. Oh yeah, the Valley of Madness. In his book, Nahani, Dick Turner described four men whom he knew personally who claimed were driven mad by loneliness and isolation in the Nahani bush. One of these unfortunates, Turner wrote, quote, died of shanty rot. Ooh. He lie on the bed in his cabin for the best part of two years and gradually rotted away. Ugh. Shanty rot. It's like a metal band. <laughs> Poor taste, Chris. Sorry. The other three suffered from paranoia certain that something or someone was out to get them. Quote, one man would lie on his bunk with his face to the wall when his neighbor came to see him. Another one would accuse his friends and neighbors behind their backs of stealing from him. The third man was really gone far. Talking with him on commonplace subjects, I found him as normal as anyone, but suddenly in the middle of conversation, he would lower his voice and in a somewhat obscure manner make reference to them. So interesting. That's going to come in the expansion accounts of these people that have been lost in the wilderness and survive and come out with this paranoia of this other, this evil thing mm-hmm. that they experienced out there. Pretty fascinating stuff. There's, I mean, there's so much in this book. Guys, we'll have in the show notes. On the madness angle, there was a reference to a prospector named, I think, Mad Joe or oh, Mad yeah. Prospector Joe or something. And he's this character who, like, the brief part of the story I read was essentially that he he showed up. And noticed that he had been bleeding on his back. And Mad Joe, what, you know, where'd you get this? And he's like, oh, I was rolling down the hill. I was rolling down the mountain. And apparently he had a propensity to just launch down the mountain and roll. It's just weird stuff like that. People just acting strangely. There's the famous story of May Lafferty, who we don't have time to get into today, but look up her story. It's fascinating. She basically goes missing and then 
even though they're right behind her and they have these native trackers searching, they see bits and pieces of her clothes. She's tearing off her clothes. No way she could survive. And yet days they track her and this young girl somehow naked running through the wilderness, they can never catch her. And she's supposedly spotted scaling a mountain with a oh, look, yeah. look of possession on her face so much that an, uh, one of the natives who were tracking her wanted to go after her, but there was something about it that just made him fear chasing her any longer or, or trying to rescue her because there was something so wrong about what was happening to her. That's interesting. It sounds like another story, I mean, unless it's the same one, but I thought it was modern account where there was another person who was camping in the area and heard commotion, kept hearing pebbles falling in the water. Oh yeah, okay. And then looked out and then saw this woman he found out like weeks later that this woman had gone missing on this hunting trip. And then that night he had kept hearing pebbles falling into the water. And he finally looked out and saw this naked, crazy eyed looking woman who he said looked possessed. He said, any other circumstance I would have gone after her to because she would, there's no way she'd survive climbing up the side of this mountain naked. But her Weird. expression was so demonic ah! that he just okay. couldn't get himself to go out there in the night and go after this person. So maybe I collided those two stories. I but think the, you might the vanishing of May Lafferty sounds almost like a spirit that, I mean, it's out there, but the way that she ran almost in a possessed fashion, because supposedly she was homesick in the direction of her home, mm. but for so long she was able to scale this giant cliff, I forget, like 100 feet or something. They followed the tracks to there, and then they went up around and saw that the tracks were on top, but they couldn't even scale it. Somehow this young girl, yeah, naked crazy. in the, you know. Weird There's some overlap. sort of, yeah, spirit that kind of possesses people to do this and that is that something that just is a feature of the environment mm -hmm. you know of the supernatural landscape there that's what we get into more in the expansion yeah in the expansion we're going to talk about these others that people see out when they are lost on glacier plains or in the valley and the strange experiences they have with these spirits or these sometimes physical demons they called them but again ties into this large hairy creature definitely interesting stuff Reminds coming up in the, the ritual yeah, a lot like that, especially when you add the madness stuff to it. And, and the this beast, it's like that beast is the big part of that. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. With the the Nordic folklore, I forget. Oh, was it the child of Loki, I think, was the lore in that movie. Wasn't it one of the children of Loki? Oh, you're talking about made this monster with the antlers right. on It was its like face. a very Wendigo type creature. Yeah. And we're, later, this story has been kind of, I think there were, it was fictionalized at some point as a Wendigo being responsible. Mm. But the Wendigo is a real piece of belief out there, a real piece of folklore. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a indigenous zombie. It is kind of the enemy. It's the other that can shapeshift and change form. I'd like to wrap up this part of our story since we're going to be exploring more of this amazing region in the expansion, more stories and creatures and entities, etc. I want to wrap up this story with a final thought, and this kind of harkens back to my containment theory idea a little bit about parks being kind of controlled, but it's also just a really nice wrap up from Hammerson Peters uh, from his book, Legends of the Nahani Valley. Yeah. The Nahani Valley would likely never have been made into a Canadian national park were it not for the mystique it had garnered over the years. And it would probably never have acquired its mystique were it not for the colorful characters whose exploits from the foundation of the legends for which it became famous. We talked about some of those today. It is almost grotesquely ironic that in immortalizing this stretch of the Mackenzie Mountains so near and dear to their hearts, these characters innocently and inadvertently destroyed many of the things they loved best about it. No longer are Dene men like Big Charlie and Diamond Sea free to hunt moose and mountain sheep in the Nahani Valley, nor prospectors like Poole Field and Albert Fallet allowed to stake claims on Bennett Creek. Trappers like Raymond Patterson and Gordon Matthews are forbidden to build cabins in Deadman Valley. 
and the entrance to Rade Valerie, the Valerie Cave, is sealed from explorers like Jean Porel with an iron gate. Nevertheless, hardcore outdoor adventurers still make summer pilgrimages to the national park to tackle the world-renowned rapids of the South Nahani and climb the sheer granite peaks near Rabbit Kettle Lake, called the Cirque of the Unclimbables. In spite of this modest traffic, the Nahani remains to this day one of Canada's most remote regions, accessible only by boat or canoe. In this wild stretch of the Northwest Territories on days when the fog rolls in to permeate the valley with an aura of mystery and romance, it's easy to entertain the notion that perhaps somewhere high up in the mist-shrouded crags of the Mackenzie, or somewhere in the deepest corners of the Taiga, a land of lost gold, Indian curses and creatures long consigned to the realm of myth and legend lurks in concealment, just waiting to be discovered. So that kind of wraps it up. Yeah, those well put, Hammerson Peters. The characters he mentioned in there are all peppered throughout his book with other stories, legends, real historical figures who help carve the history here. Right, and it exposed some of the mysteries and lore in that area. Definitely check out the book, guys. It's called Legends of the Nahani Valley by Hammerson Peters. Yeah, excellent work. We're going to touch a little bit more on this book in the expansion, as well as one of his other books in his series of Canadian mysteries. So definitely more to come. Uh, and again, we just scratched the surface on this valley. Yeah. There's so much up here of interest to the belief hole. Yes. Shout out to you, Johnny Canada, if you're listening. One of our many Canucks who enjoy the show. Right on. I hope you guys dug it. This is your territory, your region, and uh, probably butchered some of the terms and, and words. But, uh, hope you enjoyed it. This was definitely a fun one to do, and, and we'll probably look more into this region in the future. Yes! And on that note, thanks to all the new expansion members and patrons who've signed up. You guys really keep the show going. You keep the lights on here in the hole. We're running a little behind schedule today, so we're, we'll save the patron expansion member thank yous till next time. So hang in there, guys, to hear your names. But thank you guys so much for supporting us. Uh, we, we severely appreciate it. And severely? That's, I couldn't think of a better word. Ouch. Severely. So all of you members who we uh, are very thankful for, go on over to the expansion and uh, enjoy our expansion episode on this continuing fascinating region. You beautiful, beautiful belief. And if you'd like to join the expansion and jump on in, go ahead over to beliefful.com, hit the expansion button and sign up for double episodes, double the content each time we drop an episode and join us for more exploration of Legends of Canada. Access granted. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. So say you all. So say you all. Is that right? So, so say, say we, we all. all. So say we all. Watch Battlestar, John. Sorry. You won't regret it. Good show. <laughs> see you next time. On the, the belief, belief hole. hole. Yeah, we got him. Yeah, we got him. <laughs>